I am so excited about the, the digital side hug that I'm recording right now. I'm on the campus of Lipscomb University, and this is actually the, se- the second in a row podcast that I've recorded with a missionary. Now, this you are no longer on the mission field, exactly, in the, in the, in the way that you were. That's correct. I'm with Mark Moore, who, uh, Mark, t- tell us who you are and why I'm interested in, in podcasting you today. So, wow, I go way back with David Rubio, back to Harding. I'm, I'm older than David, so he came through, and, and actually the first person, I was just telling someone this earlier, first person I ever had work for me in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> I guess I was 22 or 3 or something, and you were working for me. Uh, I was which, 18 So, you know, ish. I started off, you know, just through, I got thrown in the deep end there for <laughs> people working for me. So David Rubio worked for me for a summer. I, I had graduated, and I was working for Harding. And, and, I, and you were a great supervisor in part because you, you left me to my own devices in absolutely every way, shape, form, including giving me a car. And a credit card and saying, travel the country, making people laugh. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which is it is kind of what I felt like I was born to do. You haven't stopped. Oh, it was so fun. It's 20 straight years of that. And... But you didn't, that's not what you kept doing. So you were at Harding and you became a recruiter there. Did that for a couple of years and then uh, went on to Africa, moved to Africa to Uganda, East Africa, was part of a mission team there with some great people, some of my best friends. I think we referred to you while we were in college, you you graduated before, of course, and and so y'all were gone while I was still in school and we referred to you as the Jinja team. Is that right? That's us, yes. We moved to Jinja, Uganda, That's the name of the town you were in. Mm -hmm. Small town in eastern Uganda. And I want to ask you some more about that in just a few minutes. Tell us about your where you live now, your wife and your family, and then we'll 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 get on to some other. Yeah, so made it nine years or a little more in Uganda, um, ten years overall as a missionary, and then moved home. Uh, went to grad school in Washington D.C. Picked it off the map and um, got out of when I was in grad school. Worked. Uh, it was supposed to be a two-year stint, but it ended up being seven years. So got a similar. Harding was supposed to be four, and that ended up being longer than that. <laughs> right. Then Africa was at least three, and that turned out to be a great, great time and a great stint there. And then on to uh, Washington, D.C. I worked there. I ended up working on Capitol Hill for a little while and doing a lot of stuff there. And then um, moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, which is where I now live. And you have three boys and Three boys a and a little girl, yes. Four kids all together. What are their names? And let's say hi to them. Their names are uh, Ben. Benjamin is the oldest. He's 18. And Sierra Lipscomb right now. Grady is 16-year-old, sophomore, and about to be a junior. And then Cooper is the next one. He'll, he'll be an eighth grader coming up. And then Riley is our daughter, and she is eight. So 18 to eight, 10-year gap. And and we're here on campus. Uh, I'm here with a, a big youth rally that I helped to run here in Nashville, Tennessee, called Impact at Lipscomb. And your two oldest sons are here at Senior Impact now. That's right. And my younger was here last week. I was going to ask if he was a junior because I didn't know till two days ago that you that you had any sons that were here uh, in town. I it's, I can't wait to meet them. Um, and I'm so excited I get to visit with you for just a little bit. I'm gonna I'm gonna start the chain reaction music and then ask you a few ridiculous questions. I hope that's okay. Sounds good. All right, Mark. Uh, Mark and I. You know, I, I guess it's been we've seen each other maybe two times. Or three in the last 20 years, really. I mean, yeah. it, it's been a long time, but but one of the special, special Harding uh, uh, personalities when I was at, at college in Searcy. Okay, the first question I'm going to ask, this is, should be obvious that I mean, you're going to get this question a million times in your life. Bo or Luke Duke? 
Wow, yeah, you know, I always like Bo Duke better. And Bo was the one with the blonde hair. I mean, you know, the, the, right? Luke had the dark hair. You were a, you were a Bo guy. Yeah, um, and uh, what's interesting about that, the Dukes of Hazard, uh, down in Fitzgerald, Georgia, which is where our factory is, the mayor down there uh, had been the mayor for 48 years, like the longest running mayor. And I remember meeting him for the first time. I'm from Flint, Michigan, so I'm a Yankee. And I went down there to meet him. And it reminded me of Boss Hog from really? Dukes of Hazard. So I had some kind of recent Dukes of Hazard interactions. So wow. Kind of uh, close to my heart. There. That's awesome. I, yeah, I, we're going to talk about that plant and what you do I'd now. I spent a lot of time in Georgia now. So in a little bit. Yeah, that's right. You're in Georgia a lot. I need to think a lot about that. Okay. Another 1980s question. Um, Fletch or Fletch Lives? Which one is funnier? Fletch is funnier. Okay, the original. Yes. All right, yes. and I would agree. Mm-hmm. Not everyone would. There's at least one listener to this podcast that would disagree with us right well, now. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> that's, I love, that's that. I love that you said that. Uh, okay, so let me. Uh, here's another question for you, at Harding, and I. You know, we our time didn't. We weren't there exactly together in the bowling alley arcade right beside the. You know, of course, it's all it's all changed now. Was there a favorite video game? Yeah, actually, my wife and I used to play Mrs. Pac-Man there. Really? Yeah. Mark and Marnie. Did you so we played a little Mrs. Did Pac-Man. the courtship sort of occur uh, you know, simultaneously with these games? For some and, reason, we kept yeah, in various places around. If there's ever a Mrs. Pac-Man, just a couple years ago around vacation, we found a Mrs. Pac-Man game. That's great. But yeah, I used to play Mrs. Pac-Man right there. Uh, they also had Berserk in there. I don't know if you yeah. remember Berserk. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Berserk I was never any good at it, so I didn't. I only played the games I was good at. Centipede, if you played and you hit really hard on that roller, it would pinch. Pinch your <laughs> yeah. hand. Yeah. I was a Galaga guy, and I played uh, the pinball machine Dr. Dude and his excellent Ray. That was my favorite <laughs> pinball. Uh, those were my two. Uh, I've got a, a button question for you. Now, this is going to tie into your life in Uganda. And, and what you do now is tied into your life in Uganda, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, the question is, if you the, there's a button in front of you. If you press it, then every... Everyone, the the, uh, the nation of Uganda is magically uh, enriched in, in the following way. They have the money and conveniences, and they, they basically have what we have here in America. So if you press the button, everything that we have, all the, the amenities, all the, you know, the average, you know, wage, um, that's what the average Ugandan has, okay? If you do not press it, then the in the U.S., what, what we, so we magically sort of re- reduce the stuff that we have to the level of the stuff, the things, the money in the lives of the average Ugandan. Do you press it or not? So if I don't press it, then we are reduced to their level of poverty in the United States. Correct. Well, I, I think a lot of people would die in America because I don't think we're resourceful enough to live like that. So you'd, you'd press it for the simple fact that we're not ready to, to deal with life. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen On uh, a level that difficult. You know, people say, like, the, the foundations of capitalism are crumbling and things like that. And I was listening to Louis C.K. recently, and he was saying, you know, maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need to go back, like, with a, a donkey, like, with pots clanging on the side, yeah. you know, because— um, it's uh, 
you know, right now, well, what Louis C.K. says is that everything's amazing right now and nobody's happy. Mm-hmm, you know, right. we, we right. have, when we have a phone, you know, we expect it to instantly go to space and back. You know, yeah. if it delays for a second, then we're upset. And, you know, flights to New York are three hours. Yeah. You know, as he points out, it used to take 30 years. You know, people right. would die right. on the way and have babies and right. be a whole different group of people. And then now, it, you know, you watch a movie and you're there. So I think Americans... For the very simple fact that I don't think Americans are prepared or tough enough to live like Ugandans live. They're so resourceful um, that if we went to their level, it would be devastating for our country. Though, I think there's a good case to be made that if I push the button and they become as rich as us, um, there's a lot to be lost there for them as well as far as um, with extreme wealth that we have comes a lot of, you know, a lot of pain and problems. You know, every time I go to the mission field and I take a group of students with me, we come back amazed that they seem to know God in a way that we don't. They seem to see, to hear, they seem to be aware in a way, uh, in a way that we are not. And it, and maybe it's distractions, I don't know. So anyway, that's the reason for the question. That's, a, that's an interesting question because I used to, in my time in Uganda, I used to go out in the, out in the village and uh, after a few years had a, um, I had a Toyota Land Cruiser and in the back I'd have a uh, I don't know, like a chalkboard that we'd write on and bring it out and sit down to the village and uh, usually meet someone in town and, and they'd tell me where they're from. And so I'd go to the small town, you know, they'd say, yeah. I'm from Lebanon, Tennessee or whatever. Right. So we'd go out there. And, so it'd be a very, very small town, no electricity, um, sit down in a village center and their friends would come and their family and a group of people would come and we would talk there conversing uh, eventually after a few years in the local language. But the big conversation pieces would be, uh, I would ask this question, what's, what is right about this place? And what's wrong with this place? Mm-hmm. And so we kind of frame it in the positive and try to talk a little bit about what's right because there's a whole lot right. And, and as Americans, we, we when you visit a place, or really as an outsider, when you visit a place, if you're fair-minded at all, then you are hopefully taken back by both of those things. Yeah. And um, if you're fair-minded by the things that are right about it, they catch you and they're they're different. And so the, the things are obvious there that are that are right. That there's a sense of community and there's a sense of uh, people live outside. They don't go and draw their windows and go inside and watch TV where people live more exciting lives on TV than you do. So you can, you know, kind of shut out your neighbors. Mm-hmm. And you don't live in a big enough space to actually shut people out. You just live in a – basically your hut is where you sleep and yeah. you live outside with your neighbors. So, But on the what is wrong with your – with your uh, this place, it was always the same responses. They would say, number one, we're poor. We don't have anything. I'd write that on my board. We don't have any money. And uh, – They'd also say we have terrible schools, and they would say our healthcare situation is lousy. People are dying. They have AIDS. They, have mal- they die from malaria. People die in childbirth. And um, what was interesting to me is that if we went to Nashville right now or to Memphis or to Tokyo, for that matter, or London, and you stopped someone on the street and you said, hey, this is, you know, the side hug. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're having a question for you. What's wrong with this place? And you started talking to them about big systematic problems. They would answer with those same three things. They'd say, "Our schools are bad mm-hmm. here in Memphis or here in wherever, whatever town. Our economic situation is less than ideal, and um, you know our healthcare situation is bad. I don't have health insurance if you're a poor person. That's true in Los Angeles. That's true, I think, in London today. That's true all over the world. But it's very true in these villages. Right. And um, What's interesting to me about that is that Jeremiah, we were talking about Jeremiah earlier before this. Yeah. And Jeremiah chapter 9 says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Right. So there's your education piece. Let not the strong man boast of his strength. There's your health care piece. Let not 
the rich man, boast of his riches. There's your economic empowerment piece. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to boast about something, boast that you know the Lord. And that those are the gifts. And so that first question you asked, if I could hit a button and give them all of the gifts that God intends for people to have, and many other gifts, but it would be better for them to know the giver. So I think in some ways when you are poor and you, you don't have those gifts just lavished upon you through no work of your own, you know, I, I like to say Americans are born on third base and yeah. think they hit a triple. Right. And, you know, Africans are born in the dark dugouts of poverty and come up to bat with two strikes. And then we say, what's wrong with these people? Well, how come they, you right. know, they're hitting 90 mile an hour pitches with one swing? So you know, that... That's a tough question because if we do hit that and they get the gifts, are they less likely to know the giver? As we seem to be in our own culture to yeah. actually pursue or know the giver. So we fall yeah. in love with the gifts. Right. <laughs> Sadly. Um, I, I, I want to I jump right in, but I've also, I'm, I'm, I want to hear you answer this question uh, from Morris Gregoire. The question is, what is the strangest thing that you currently have memorized? That's a, off the top of my head, it's osmosis is the diffusion of water through a selectively permeable membrane from areas of greater concentration to areas of lesser concentration. That's from eighth grade. And you remember that from the, the eighth grade? only thing I remember from, I think, eighth grade biology. <laughs> That's great. I don't know why, but I guess I studied. That's the um, only thing I ever studied in my life. Well, th this is a really fun podcast for me. Um, listeners to the Digital Side Hug will know that I, I, most of the people that I talk to are youth ministers. Sometimes I'll interview individuals that... May, that I think youth ministers will find interesting or, or benefit from knowing or hearing. And uh, for me, this is special in part because I, when I went to college, I had no thought of youth ministry whatsoever. I actually thought I was going to become a sports center TV anchor. That's, that's what I went You'd to college thinking I was going to do after my sports career. I was a pole vaulter, a track guy. Um, and then the, in the spring of my freshman year, uh, this guy I'm sitting with here, Mark Moore, pulled me aside and said, hey, I've got this summer job I think you're going to love, and, and it involves driving all over the country to different church camps, and I want you to do a skit show. In where, an 86 Oldsmobile. That's right. Yeah. It, was a, it was a Ford Taurus. It was a blue Ford Taurus, <laughs> and I'll never forget it. Uh, and we drove 19,812 miles that summer. And went to 27 states, and we went to Canada. And got paid $50 a week. And we barely got yeah. paid anything, but all expenses were covered. Yeah. It was just great. And we went to these camps, and we did a skit show. You know, So we did a one-hour performance, and at the end of the performance, we would throw out these Harding cards. They were you know. a huge hit, by the way. They were, and, these guys were rock stars. And everybody, we would say, we'll give free T-shirts, you know, uh, and, and we'll pull your name out of the hat. You just fill out this card that gives us all the information we need to bother you and bug you like crazy to try and get you to come to Harding. Um, well, what happened that summer, and you didn't intend this, I don't think, but, but what happened that summer was there were three different youth ministers, three different people leading youth camps who tapped me on the shoulder and said, have you ever thought of youth ministry? And the first to do that was a guy named Steve Autry that I'm hoping to have on this podcast a legend, someday. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. A St. Louis youth pastor, just an amazing, amazing man of God. And I, I was at Camp Neotez outside of St. Louis when he said, I think you could be a youth minister. And I was like, what? I, I, well, I'm not going to do that, but I thank you for saying that. And my mind was in other places. But then, the, the, you know, it, it was the next summer when I began doing, you know, sort of volunteer youth work at a con congregation up on Long Island. Uh, I mean, the, you know, so sitting with you is really, really cool, getting to talk with you about these things. Um, it makes me, makes me wonder how many OC uh, 
parents and moms, I need to go write an apology. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry about that. I didn't mean it. <laughs> yeah, no, you, it was an innocent. You just needed. Yeah, you just need somebody to travel around and hand so, out cards. I may, if I do nothing else in my life, then I, I'm very proud that I had some that's, small role in. That's really funny. Can you do what you do? Um, so you, you spent ten. You and Marnie went with a team of uh, eight other people. Were there five that's correct. couples? Correct. Yeah, five couples. And you formed a team, and you went to Uganda. And you did a ministry there that I'm sure is is a, a pretty broad ministry. I'm, was there? Did you guys start a coffee house there in in Jinja? We or? did eventually in town. Yeah, okay, we were yeah, working on rural church planting. You went the, to rural church planting, so you would go and find the man of peace in a different in, in each village and just try to begin conversations that would turn into a, a church. Was that the hope? Yeah, I think the language then from in missy, missiology circles was a web. Movements is what they were called. But going, we went to an area that was fairly homogenous in that people still spoke their local dialect. And can you say something in that dialect still? I can. Yes, yes. It's called Lusoga. Lusoga uh, is the name of the language or the, the people? Lusoga. The people are called the Basoga. So the root word is soga. Okay. So Ba is people. Lu is the language. And can you say welcome to the digital side hug in Lusoga? Yeah. Tusangaide uh, eno. Where, buddy? Okuridisa, digital side hug. Thank you for listening to the digital That's side. That's great. Uh, and so you would go out and and I'm guessing in in their language try to say. No, it was really I, I bad. Mark, bad, you know, you know bad, here's bad. a box of sin. We're going to do a skit. Everybody sit around. The father, actually, father. John Barton and I did the box of sin. Did you really? Sober. Yes, we did. It, yeah. Oh, that's so. So that's funny. a box that we'd write sin on, and then you get stuck in it. Yes, yeah, it's a, a classic. And your friend gets you stuck in there, and then Jesus gets now, you. Now, did you write that skit? Oh no, no. I okay, so it was going before. Yeah, yeah, I just remember you taught it to me and Charlie Jerry. Oh yeah, stolen from who knows where, but um, it's classic, isn't it? And how, how many how many churches did you plant? And and do you still keep tabs on how still that's do? Yes. Yeah, there's still uh, a mission team there. There's a guy named Bobby Gardner and his wife Candace are there right now. Uh, and there's been an ongoing presence there for more than 20 years. And there's about uh, 60, 70 rural churches, I think, um, in that area of eastern Uganda. So the Nile River runs up out of Lake Victoria, which is a big lake. And then there's a group of people, a couple million people that live on one side. Um, and that's where we were focused. And, and then there's a main town that serves them, and that's where we started our coffee shop, kind of as a uh, a way, a place for the church to meet, basically. We were, kind of, we were accidentally cool and hip ahead of our time there, I think. Yeah, that's, that's really that – Can't say early. we planned it, but we were, right, right. We were ahead of our time. Um, so is there a, like a my – my nine years plus in Uganda taught me this or I'll never forget. Like, like what are some meta kinds of uh, takeaways – um, that that you sort of still live with, uh, and and then we'll start talking about your reentry to the U.S. and what you're doing now. To well, the, the there's some anthropological sort of insights that were, uh, even though I'd taken kind of cultural anthropology a little bit and half listened a bit, you know, missionary anthropology things right. like that. Living them out over the years, kind of looking in the rearview mirror, you begin to see how important. Um, to me, those sociological and anthropological insights of speaking a language, going in and and not showing up and saying, hey, I got answers, and you got problems, so sit down. Mm-hmm. We're going to kind of fix your problems, which I think is the way we operate as church people in, in a lot of scenarios, whether we're taking the youth group on a mission trip to the inner city of Memphis or yeah. uh, meeting with someone who walks into our community and is struggling. So. 
at times we get a little misguided and start to think, hey, you're lucky because I got answers and you got problems. Yeah. Which um, Jesus does have answers, so I'm not playing that down. But I think right. The yeah. arrogance of of presenting oneself as as having answers, you know, I think we all look back at younger years and just kind of yeah. go, oh, geez, I hope there's no video of uh, that's not saved on a cosmic server somewhere. What, what led you to your current, you know, role of working with org of trying to feed, you know, and, and conquer malnutrition in the world? Yeah, not one thing. I mean, I look back now in the rearview mirror, I see... As I even tell the story, I tend to leave out all the people and the paths. And so uh-huh. it's sort of like what made you become a youth minister. You see yeah. these really crucial crossroads. So some of the most crucial crossroads were um, I was working on Capitol Hill. I, I became a legislative fellow in the U.S. Senate. This so is after grad school? Is, kind of is at this the very you went end of to grad, grad school? school to do? No, I went, so I went to a program called Communication, Culture, and Technology, um, which is standing, which is at Georgetown. So I was two and a half years there. And when I got out, right at the close of that, I actually got to go on a congressional delegation trip to back to Uganda. Wow. Which was funny because I, I went as the trip coordinator and the translator. And uh, people in Uganda speak great English, so you don't really need a translator. <laughs> right. <clears throat> Everyone we met spoke both the local language and English better than me. So it was ironic, maybe fitting government role for me. But uh, I got to know this senator who is a senator from Louisiana. Mary Landrew was her name. So I, I actually worked on her staff for... Okay. About a year and a half. Um, is that where is that where the doors began to open to, to work with? Yeah, that was PIs? one of that was one of the doors. Yes, because one of the big ones was UNICEF, which I knew very little about, other than their trucks used to drive by me in yeah. Uganda. Um, <clears throat> the United Nations Emergency Fund for Children. Um, it uh, is part of the UN, and they had come to try to encourage those of us who were on staffers on the U.S. Senate that when food aid is divvied up. So we as Americans, we pay taxes, a little bit of that. It's funny because if you ask Americans what percentage of our money goes in foreign aid, the answers are like 25%, yeah. 35%. It's actually about uh, one half of 1% or a little wow. less. So oh, I, I, well, I would have guessed 10 or 15 probably. No, it's extremely small. So of that one half of 1% of the, of the money we spend, um, how do we spend it? And we usually spend it with corn and grain and stuff that our farmers grow to try to help our farmers out and to help people out. So we're a very generous country. We're, we give more than almost the whole world combined. We give a lot. Um, but as a percentage of our GDP, it's, small, yeah. it's pretty small. And it's pretty small compared to other countries that are much more generous as a percentage of their GDP. But anyway, they were reminding us of this and saying it would be cool if you would give away these peanut butter packets that are value-added. So they're actually produced here yeah. somewhere. And it's peanut butter. Yeah, it's souped up high, you know, like really. Was this the nutty? Uh, that was called Plumpy Nut. Plumpy Nut. This yes. is the thing made in France. Plumpy Nut was one of the name brands, yes. And it was kind of like Kleenex in that yeah. people knew so little about facial tissues that they only called them Kleenex. Right. So at that point, they, they said, yeah, we were looking for some Plumpy Nut. So I took some notes and left the meeting. And just they showed a video, which anybody watch this podcast, if you go uh, – you can email me and I'll send you a video of Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes talking about this stuff. It's phenomenal. He's they talking say about RUTF. About RUTF. And he says it is a revolution in nutritional affairs. And okay, let, now let's stop there because you sent a Manabago around the country that stopped at our church and sort of told us about RUTF and why it's, a, it's revolutionizing the industry or the industry, revolutionizing the fight against hunger. 
Tell us real quick, why is RUTF, what is it about RUTF that's doing that? So right now, David and I are sitting at a table, and um, if, if, I, if you imagine a tabletop, and I, I now grab an iPhone, and, I, and I'm always breaking the screen on my iPhone, so this is a good analogy. But if I, if I just let it dangle off the edge of the table, so imagine a, an iPhone precariously dangling to where just the weight is just balanced enough to where it doesn't tip and doesn't fall, and there's a tile floor below you. And if I bump that table, then off it goes. And who knows what's going to bump the table. It could be my kid running through. It could be the wind blows. It could be a whole bunch of things. It could bump the table. But the reality is that sitting in such a precarious position for that phone is a dangerous place to be in. And, and it's going to fall off and get broken eventually. And so kids in Sudan today, uh, you know, punch into a Google search while you're listening to this, malnutrition Sudan, and hit news, and you will just get... I don't, I don't know when you, if you listen to this two years from now, you'll probably get stories. Uh, but especially right now at the time of this recording, it, it's just a crisis right now. Because kids who are born in Sudan, 80% of those kids are born to a hungry mom. Nutritionally, they're right on the edge of the table. So if something bumps that table, off they go. And they're born hungry. They live hungry. They they're hungry every day? Every day. They, 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 they're so far behind catching up. Is that, is that That's right. They're born behind. So you're born in a hole. You're born uh, to where... Born hungry to a hungry mom, and you really never catch up. If you could just get that kid to normal. And, and, and that's what RUTF does. That's what it does. It the, gets them, those, gets the Manabago guys, uh, the, uh, Mark bought a Winnebago. Is this right? Yes, yeah, 1972. A 1972 on Winnebago. Sweet, wasn't it? This is pre-Breaking Bad? Or, or was this about the time Breaking no, Bad? No, pre-Breaking breaking, breaking Bad ripped us off, man. We, okay. We, this before Breaking Bad. So this, this started the, the sort of Winnebagos are cool, you know, re, re, Redux. Mm-hmm. And I you guys souped again. this up and sent it around. And I remember they put this tent in our parking lot. And then these two guys, Mark Slagle and Alex Cox, Alex Cox yep. good spread. They, by the way. they had uh, they had this this uh, thing that would wrap around, and it had color. It was color coded, and so you could put it around the arm of a child to determine. Yes, it's called a MUAC device. A MUAC, middle upper arm circumference, yes. and it would tell you just how malnutrition. It what was remarkable is the the amount of malnutrition beyond normal. Like I would think, I would I, I remember thinking, how can you get that far past where you ought to be? You know, how yeah. can anybody live at that point where you've lost that much of your arm? You know, your body mass. Your your arm is basically a bone at that point. So these kids, especially between six and six months and six years old, that's the window. If you hit that window in a child's life nutritionally, they'll be good to go. If you can get them back to normal, they're, they're, they can get a good life. They can be healthy. If you miss that window, it's too late. And so the thought was always get the mother's milk? The thought, you know, for years is now ideally what you want and much better than manna is mother's breast milk. Right. And, and a healthy so, mom feeding her baby. That's right. But if you've got a 16-year-old mom who's got a child and she doesn't have any breast milk because of her nutritional deficiencies, this child is, is starving. Yeah. So your only option is some sort of infant formula or something like that. The problem with infant formula, if you bring it in in a, in a big bag of powdered milk, you can imagine if you're in Sudan or Ethiopia or something, you're going to mix it with water that's probably not pristine. Mm-hmm. And then once you mix it, you're gonna, not going to have a very, gonna great shelf bad. life. You don't have a fridge, so... Even here in the States, when we mix formula, we, they tell you not to keep it. You mix it, use it, get rid of right, it. Right. And then the third thing is mixing it correctly is tough. I mean, these are not moms who have math- mathematical views right. of the world. So they're, they're trying to hit a stomach target that's the size of maybe a ping pong ball. And so you fill that little stomach up with 
if you mix it wrongly, yeah. you don't get the right micronutrients. And so the peanut butter stuff is awesome because you take the milk, you stabilize it in peanut butter, stick it in a packet. That packet lasts two years, and it's got it's got nitrogen flushed in it. Each packet's about thirty cents. It's the size of an iPhone. Yeah, it's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's a it's a it's it's a, it's like a I'm trying to think of what it's like. It's like a Cliff Bar that's gooey. You yeah, know? it's sort of. I, I compare it to almost like uh, peanut butter cake frosting or something. It's really sweet. Yeah, and you just kind of make you fat if you eat it. That's for you, sure. You just kind of move it around in your fingers and then and then tear it and squeeze it right out. Squeeze it out. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a thick peanut butter. The last two years, it's got all the nutrients of mother's milk. But, but it doesn't go bad. It doesn't have to be mixed with anything. Yeah, and it's not designed to replace their diet for anything more. It's like a medicine. So it's an intervention for a kid who has nothing else. It's pushing them away from the edge of that table, getting them back to the center. Then they go back to their normal yeah. food, but they're fat and healthy. Right. And, um, you know, they still face other battles. They still get malaria. They still, you know, the wind's still blowing is the analogy. But how they don't many, get blown off the edge of the table. How many packets of manna are being produced today? Oh, today we make about a quarter of a million every day. A quarter of a million Actually, manna packets yeah. every day. Yeah. And they go on ships or planes or... They do both, but mostly on ships. And they go to Africa, to South America, to... Where? They go all over the world, all of the above. We've sent them to North Korea. We've sent them to 30-some countries. But mostly a big, big places right now are Central African Republic. Wherever there's a famine, wherever you see kids who are at the end of their rope and need a, a nutritional intervention in their life beyond just the normal food. You know, most kids... If we went to inner city Memphis, picking on Memphis today, but if you went down, you found a very poor family um, for a whole host of reasons. And you looked, if you looked in their cupboard, you, may, you might find them making nutritional choices that were not the best. Right. Um, not because they're anything to do with how smart they are, just because of When cultural. you go to the store, you, yeah, the cheapest food you can buy is not always the food you ought to be eating. That's right. Food deserts. Uh, it's with access to food. It's about their culture. It's about how they were brought up. So you might find... I mean, you know, but, you know, look at my pantry. You might see some of the same things. So. <laughs> Soda, sweetened cereal. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah Cheetos. absolutely. So if you, if you, and what we do know is that if you said and eat, you know, some drink soda and eat Cheetos, this is not a recipe for great health. Right, right. And in America, that malnutrition, the Latin prefix M-A-L, mal, uh, ends up being overnutrition or obesity. And so when we see very poor people uh, in America, we tend to see them be obese because they're eating a lot of carbs and a lot of sugar. A lot of food that's not great food. And that's what they develop a taste for. If we went to Sudan today and we went to a place like Juba, which is in South Sudan, and you looked in the cupboard of a, of a poor mom there, she would be feeding her children millet, which here is birdseed. And it has basically no nutritional value. But that's what her parents ate. Mm-hmm. They didn't die. And so, it, and more than likely, uh, she grew up and got those first 6 to 12 to 18 months in on mother's milk. And, yeah. and what you see in these developing countries, so if you go to Guatemala, for example, people are stunted. That's why the average height in Guatemala is 5'2 or 5'3, when they could very easily be 5'8, 5'10. They just, they're stunted, you know, in their height because of nutritional deficiencies. Uh, so beyond the mother's milk uh, period, they, they, they're getting what they need early, but then they're not getting it after And if you that. don't get what you need early, then you, it's not just your body that doesn't grow. The long bones, you, you know, make you so you're not tall, which is... Not great for your basketball career, but right. it's not the end of the world for right. other things. But if your brain doesn't grow, yeah, you're behind for life. How does, if somebody's listening to this and thinks, man, I want to just, I want the Manabago to come to us. I mean, obviously, the Manabago is not coming to them. That's right. That's right. Because it, it exploded. It 
<laughs> they died. They can find this online, the story. Is there is there a video online of the Mayabago burning? There is. Go to Good Spread. Okay, help, Good help Spread. It's called what? Help Good Help Spread? Good Spread is the name of their website. Okay. Help Good Spread. I think if you just com. Google Manabago Fire, you will. it's pretty popular. And this is M-A-N-A because it stands for Mother Assisted Nutritive Aid. You got it. Yeah. Mana, M-A-N-A, mananutrition.org. And of or, course the Manabago yeah. was our effort to, we did what, what any smart group would do is we bought a 1972 Winnebago and sent it out to college campuses. And since I couldn't get... David Rubio to quit his job and do it. I had to get Mark Slagle, another guy from Nashville. Oh, and they were so good. And so they got us excited about being a part of this somehow. You know, if, if there is a youth minister here listening that wants to know more or find out more, do they just go to the website? I mean, is there another version of a Manabago or, or is there a way for them to see a demonstration or, or, to, or to learn? Because... Somebody's got to pay for these packets to be made, right? I mean, some is our government helping uh, to to make this, or is this all private donations from churches? I mean, what? You know, no, you, it is. It's predominantly a food aid thing. I mean, I tell people sadly, as a as a church guy. So the the first kind of twenty years of my life and career was, I mean, I was on the dole as a missionary. So right, you know, when when people meet you, David, they say, "Oh, you're a youth minister. How good for you." You know, you kind yeah. of feel sorry for you a little bit. And, like you don't have a real job. Well, I was I was that right, as a missionary right, for all those right. years, and churches paid my salary. And now I, it flipped, and I work in the development world. I work, and we sell to not church people at all. These are totally secular people who, that are trying to end world hunger. Who are trying to end world hunger? In fact, one of the sad commentaries on evangelicals specifically at church people in general is that uh, I hate to say this, but they really don't care that much about starving kids. I mean, their money's not where their mouth is. Right. All the money that goes to feed these kids is from the UN and from mm-hmm. the US government, not from churches. Catholics, yes. Protestants, evangelicals, they're building gymnasiums right now. So why do you think that is? Uh, you know, I think it sounds I mean and, and you're saying this, you're you're a member of a of an of oh, a I'm Protestant straight, church, I'm an evangelical church. Church guy, yeah. I'm, I mean you're you're, you're I, a, I believe that the church is the only way to change the world. I don't believe in the UN I don't want to cast my lot there. But you just said you just said, you know that, these 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 non-religious organizations putting are us trying to shame, end yeah. world hunger. They're putting yeah. us to shame. We're, we don't care. We, I don't know that it, we do care. There's no doubt about that. And I think if you go the last mile and find out who is actually handing this to a kid. So after the UN buys it, who's actually handing this to a kid? In the great majority of times, it's yeah. someone in the name of Christ doing it. So um, the hands and feet of Christ are out there doing it. They're just under-resourced. Yeah. And they have to go, sadly, not to their churches, but to these... You know, so even the big groups like World Vision, way I mean, they got tons of money and they're way underfunded in this regard. Um, and part of it is, I think that when the blame doesn't go to the churches, it maybe goes to groups like us who don't articulate the need in a powerful way. Uh, that was one of the attempts of the Man of Vago is how do we make this a yeah. relevant message that that's accessible, makes sense to me. It's kind of goofy and funny, yeah. very David Rubio ish, but. Um, <laughs> Is there a way to make it accessible and accessible? And I don't think we do a good job of that. And I don't think they, then, you know, Jesus said, let those who have ears, let them hear. And I don't think we really have ears to hear the hunger thing because it sounds like a black hole. It doesn't sound like the gospel. It sounds like uh, humanitarian soft soap. And we'd rather not be involved in that as evangelicals. We'd rather pass out Bibles. And I was a missionary. You know, I'm not being critical of right. of the idea that the gospel really is um, speaking and living out the words of 
Christ is found in the Bible. I'm, I'm sold on that. If When you do get in conversations with ministers like me who may not know you and, and don't think of you as a larger-than-life sort of character that, that uh, really sets a course in life, so you're a stranger. Do you just get the eyes, do the eyes just glaze over? Is it kind of a, a in one ear, out the other kind of deal? Or we'll find some other way to use our funds or this is not what we're after? Well, and how discouraging is that? It's a little discouraging, but uh, I also, I'm big into cutting people slack. I think if we had a lot more cutting people slack in the world, the whole world would be better off. And so rather than, I believe that most, in fact, I would nearly say all, but maybe not all, but a huge majority of people who serve as ministers at churches of various stripes and denominations are deeply good people, in it for the right reasons. I mean, otherwise it makes no sense to me. I mean, they're getting paid a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and so the um, so I believe in, um, and so burden goes back to the person who's the messenger. And I think the message has been 20, make, 20 minutes of making you feel bad. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think, especially the young people you're working with and have for the last I would say especially the last 10 years, are not, they care more, I think, uh, it's true to say, uh, than people when I was their age. Mm-hmm. But they're probably yeah. less receptive to 20 minutes of making you feel bad. They want to do something. They want, yeah. to, they want Tom's shoes right. to show up. They want to make yes. ethical well, choices with their purchases and, and things and, like that. And, and this is what Good Spread is doing. Yeah, that's what Good right. Spread good, good Spread is selling peanut butter that every one of the students of every youth pastor, youth pastor listening to this Good Spread is a company that's making something they could put in their lunch and take with them to, to eat at school. And beyond that, triple win for Good Spread. Because Good Spread, what you're doing is you're getting great peanut butter. You're going to eat anyway. So kind of like and it's mixed with like honey. Amway. It, it's Amway. delicious. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Amway. We're going to use these products. No, you can you could sell someone a packet of peanut butter. They're going to eat. It's a little it's a little more expensive than uh, eating Skippy or Jif yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But it's great peanut butter. But I think for the youth groups, one youth. Uh, church, in fact, it's a church here in, in Nashville. Actually, bought the Good Spread and went and gave it out to hungry people in yeah. the city of Nashville. And so, there's and when a that way, happens, there's they another give away way. a packet of ours. So, a kid in Africa somewhere got yeah. a packet of ours by the purchase of the a packet made. of the RUTF. Yeah, so it was very global, local. Right, uh, it's very Tom's ish. Good, good, good move for the church because the church, rather than saying, hey, I'm going to push this issue far away to Africa so we can all dream about yeah. it and the kids don't have to actually meet up with someone who's hungry, um, which is very dreamy and, you know, kids yeah. are going to love that. It made them go out and actually interact with people who are hungry here. So you go to a homeless yeah. person or you go to a food bank and say, and food banks love peanut butter. It's got a long shelf life. Yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah. really healthy stuff. Especially good stuff. That's great. Not too That's late really sugar. great. Okay, this is this is we're approaching the longest podcast I've ever done. All right, we keep rambling. Which, by the way, I, I cannot think of a more exciting guest to to reach this point with, Mark. Um, but I want you to talk about this book. You're writing a book. You did a TED talk. I did. Uh, yes. That that is about the has the man the, of mango in there a little bit. It, it, the the idea is God wants to feed us. So yeah. Say so the about TED that. talk was the secular version of this. So I didn't mention. Right. Yeah, Maybe yeah. the Lord forgive me, but I didn't mention God because they wouldn't let me talk on sure. TED Talk. About this was a TEDx Charlotte talk. Yes, yes. So I was talking about education and how I think a lot of what you do as a youth minister, what others who are listening to this, is, is you're speaking very powerful words into the lives of young people. And what we believe about words, uh, especially words of Christ, is that the Word became flesh and these words are still alive. And so they kind of pass through us because yeah. the living Word is still alive in us. And so the words we speak, not our own words and our own wisdom, but the words we speak that are especially from Scripture and our take on Scripture, as long as it's a humble take, become alive. And they also are prescriptive in 
and setting the course for the future of kids. They get out in there and they actually do these things. So that was my, my TED talk was about how as an educator, you're actually setting the future for people by by teaching. It's a, one of the most important things you can do in the world. But the book is this whole conversation we've been having for the last 20 minutes is about engaging the church. Me being unfairly overly critical of the church and saying they don't care when the secular world does care, which I want to make sure I don't you know, come off as too high and flutin yeah, and right. say that. But the book is called Nourish, and the subtitle is A God Who Loves to Feed Us. And the idea is that if you read Scripture, there are, there are these big meta-narratives in Scripture. So in most of these that we see in Scripture are um, metaphors. So I was lost, but now I'm found. I was right. blind, but now I see. Uh, I was in prison, but now I'm free. And we, we, we go through all of these metaphors. And for most of us, the metaphors from Scripture, I've never been blind. Now, I, I, I quickly spiritualize it and say, wow, I can think of a million ways right. that I was spiritually blind. Uh, but Jesus was really making blind people. Right, he see, was talking I about was, blind people. I was lame, but now I can walk. Eyes, he was yeah. making them. I was a prisoner, but now I'm free. I've never been a prisoner. Right. And yet Jesus was, you know, Paul was actually a prisoner who was freed, and Jesus was doing these things. So, I, And I think back in, they lived much more like our conversation earlier about Uganda, where you're living much closer to the earth, much fewer gadgets and things and money and other things to, to pull you away from this earthiness. And so you actually see people who are living and experiencing these things. When we read those metaphors today, um, and in a way they have a bit of distance, we have to spiritualize all of them. Right. Except for the hunger metaphor. You know, I was hungry, but now I'm well fed. And so this, I think that there's a certain power, that there's a certain realness there to hunger because every single day, we all get hungry, mm-hmm. and that's by design. And that actually hunger is our friend. The fact that not being hungry would be to always be full and to always be sort of stuffed. You know, how awful do you feel if you're always stuffed? You know, mm-hmm. but that it's not it's not good to ever feel hungry and not have a way to yeah to, to satiate it. But to to be hungry is a great blessing. And and I would argue that as a youth minister, when you cease to be hungry, you're dying. Yeah. Right. And that's true of, as a business guy or whatever you're doing, I think a lot of people reach the age of 40 or 45 or 50 and they go, geez, I'm not very hungry anymore in my job. And so they're they're kind of dying there, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's the case for severe acute malnutrition. These kids are no longer hungry. It's just the opposite. They've ceased to be hungry because of the deficiencies they faced. And now when you don't have hunger spurring you on to make you want to eat, you're done for. You're going to die. So we get, you know, that's why it's super urgent to get into their lives. If you look at scripture, we were born in a garden, started in a garden, not for sentimental reasons, but because God had this plan to nourish people. Right. And from uh, the very beginning, we see poor choices around food, the apple choice. And then you see mm-hmm. you know, Jacob and Esau, and they're fighting over soup. And uh, then just this theme starts to develop through the Old Testament of um you know, when Joseph is thrown into a pit and because his brothers were jerks, partly, but partly because God had a plan to save the whole world from famine. Yeah. And so they come and they, they put themselves in slavery. And it's an economic transaction that puts the Israelites into slavery. It's not they weren't captured. They traded off everything. The first they came one year and they sold, you know, what they had. And finally they sell their land and finally they sell they themselves. They had nothing to sell, yeah. And so they become slaves and then things are rough and then God intervenes and pulls them out of there. And how does he intervene? He pulls him, he attacks Pharaoh's entire food production system. First, they're his means of production. He's taking them away. The Nile is there, is what they're irrigating. The Egyptians were amazing centuries and centuries ahead of everybody in their ways 
of irrigating. So yeah. the Fertile Crescent, which is right there, which enabled Pharaoh and his monopoly to build up all this food, is destroyed by God. God says, I'm going to turn your Nile into blood. I'm going to head some locusts. I'm going to eat all your crops. Your cows are going to die. No more milk for you. All, their entire food production system is wiped out. To the, it culminates with the Israelites leaving. And as they leave, they get out in the desert and they start griping and complaining. Yeah, about food. I wish we had never left. <laughs> you know, how many of us had more than enough to eat right. when we were back there? And then God rains down food on their heads and manna falls out of the sky. And the story keeps going and David and his men are eating bread and, and that was made for the temple. And, and then there's Ruth who's gleaning and Elisha's fed by ravens and it just keeps on going and it culminates in this, this uh, epic between the Old and New Testament where there's a big two, three hundred year gap or however long it is. And in that time, Alexander the Great shows up. This is the intertestamental periods. Yeah. And then after Alexander the Great shows up, you've got the Romans show up. And then the Romans, things are rough. 2,000 Jews are crucified in one shot. The, the Maccabean revolt mm-hmm. occurs. And I would argue that as bad as it got in the Old Testament, as many times as they said, where's God? I think in this moment, they have to be saying, you know, it's called the abomination that you know, the abomination of desecration or whatever, where they, right. they, they go into the temple and they kill a pig. Uh, the the cichlids uh, actually sacrifice a pig on the altar and they spirits blood all over. I mean, how bad does it get for Jews Oof. when they're sacrificing a pig on your altar? And where's God? And then all of a sudden, born in Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. Yep, that's in, right. In they a feeding like trough, them. in a manger, in a feeding trough, is the bread of life. And... He shows up, and the very first temptation he faces is to turn bread, bread and to sto- Stone stones into bread. bread. And then he goes about his ministry, and every time you turn around, he's feeding somebody. He's feeding, yeah. Or, or sharing a meal, you know. Yeah, in fact, you read the book of Luke. It's a great story about the book of Luke, but it's hard to find Luke anytime when Jesus is not on his way to a meal yeah. or coming from a meal. Food's place. everywhere in Luke. And the disciples are always saying things like, maybe just send these people away. Who's going to feed them? It takes six months' wages to feed these people, and Jesus says, you need to feed them. All the way through to where he is, he tells his final story, which is the sheep and the goats. Uh-huh. He says, I was hungry. You guys didn't feed me, along with some other things about being in prison and all the things that happened on the cross where he was thirsty and naked and other yeah. things. Then he leaves them, and they, uh, in, in one story, he's walking along the road, and these guys say, didn't our, our hearts were burning within us when yeah. that stranger came Amazing. up, and he yeah. told us everything. And then we sat down to eat with him, and when we ate with him, he disappeared. And he appears to the disciples, and he says, hey, cast your nets on the other side. And Peter jumps in, and he said, son of Peter, what does he tell Peter? You need to feed my sheep. Yeah. Three times. So we spiritualize all that. And I think what we know from common sense is while we have this grand sweeping narrative of God wanting to feed us, and also Jesus being pretty emphatic with people to say, you came for the wrong type of food. Mm-hmm. I've got food that you would never be hungry again, yeah. right? So he's clear that there is the most important aspect of this is the spiritual nourishment that we can achieve through knowing the bread of life in Christ. But, I mean, look at his track record. He was feeding people all the time. And what we know about church every Sunday, no matter how good your preacher is, right about time he goes 10 minutes over, everybody's <laughs> hungry and not listening. Everybody's looking at the door. Yeah, and if we in our holiness can't listen to somebody when we're hungry... How is the world going to listen to us? So yeah. I, to me, I think there's a, the point of the book, uh, hopefully it's not as long as the, as the explanation it's I just the gave description. you, <laughs> is just to say this narrative is true and real, and then it's, it's sprinkled with anecdotes to say yeah. um, that 
If someone reads this book and comes to the end and said, hmm, I'm confused. Was he talking about spiritual feeding or physical feeding? Then I'll say, good, I succeeded. Because yeah. I think that this... You're blurring the line between the two. The artificial um, conversation we continually have about saying spiritual feeding is is all that different from spirit. Mm -hmm. they're, they're just, we're human beings. We're spiritual and physical. and um, It's both. So I think if we can embrace that right now, there are more Christians in the world than there are... Chinese. It's pretty good from 12 guys. And there yeah, are more Christians, more Christians in the world than there are Indians. There are more Christians in the world today than there are Indians and Chinese combined from 12 guys. And yet there are more hungry people in the world. And uh, I think, you know, we're sitting here in Nashville, Tennessee, where I don't know how many building plans there are for a new gymnasium or yeah. other stuff. So yeah. I think we can reappropriate some of those funds and say, hey, we're going to not let kids die. And use that as an opportunity to reach the parents and tell them about food that never goes goes away. I, I didn't know you were here two, even two days ago, but uh, getting a chance to talk and catch up, and, and, and it turns out neither one of us knows where Charlie Jarrett is now. <laughs> Charlie, if you're out there. Yeah, we, we need someone to track down Charlie Jarrett or Elena Wilson Jarrett. Uh, we want to know what country you're in and LinkedIn how do they say, Father, Father, I think I'm going to die in that language. <laughs> um, are you doing that skit somewhere? Um, thank you for just doing what you do and being who you are and, and all the all this. You've got such an interesting life. Um, and the challenge is a, is a, is a really powerful one. Um, thank you for sharing now, with us. Now, I will say my son said to me, you know David Rubio? <laughs> I was like, oh, man, he's my friend, way back. We're like, we're like this. We're super close. So it just made me uh, cooler in the eyes of my, of my teenagers, too. That's, that's really, really funny. To well, even I, vicariously hang out with you. I wonder if they might have helped today as, as I was able to be victorious in the ball race, the beach ball race that occurs. Uh, today was our big final round. Um, so I've got bragging rights for a year. Um, take that, Skid. Anyway, um, I, they were probably sitting on Skidmore's side. He's much more lovable. Tends to Doesn't respect people's equal. personal space more than I do, and that, that that is a valuable thing in today's culture. But I do not, which is a great segue into this oh, right this here, which is hug. an actual hug. Uh, Mark, what I love honor. you. Please give a hug. And this, this is for Marnie. Take that Thank one home you. to Marnie. And maybe I'll get to meet your sons tonight, uh, the last night of Impact. Um, if, you're, if you're interested in more of this, I started the wrong music, actually. If you're interested in hearing more about uh, what Mark is doing now, then mananutrition.org. That's right. Check it out. Or you can go to helpgoodspread.org, which, which is kind of a spinoff company that is uh, sort of doing the Tom's thing, but with, but with nutritive food, with uh, R-U-T-S. So thank you, Mark Moore, and thank you, listening audience. And I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes from here. And we'll see you next time on the Digital Side Hugs. Does that sound good? Yep. Thank Love you. Love you, Mark. Thanks.